Hey everyone, it's Lou Rosenfeld, and welcome to another installation of the Rosenfeld Review Podcast, and I am here with my friend, Abby Covert. Hey Abby, how are you doing? Hey Lou, good, how are you? Great, glad to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me. Abby is known uh, as an author and expert in this new and up-and-coming field that you've been hearing a lot about called information architecture. <laughs> and uh, uh, is uh, known for many things. Uh, I really love her book. I'm kind of jealous, you know. I uh, wish I'd write a book like this one of these days um, that would actually make IA a little bit more understandable by everyone, not just understandable, but accessible. Her book is called How to Make Sense of Any Mess. She did it all herself, illustrated, uh, self-published. It's really impressive, uh, and it's a great book. Um, and so, uh, if you um, don't want to, uh, the uh, you know fussy uh, um, kind of doorstop take on IA, which I had something to do with, you should really read Abby's book. Actually, you know what? Read them both. Uh, make us both happy. Uh, Abby is um, uh, going to be speaking at our upcoming virtual conference, uh, October 11th, called "User Research for Everyone." And uh, yes, Abby is more known for IA, but she's also known for IA of everything, making sense of any mess. And research, and specifically the results of research, are typically a huge mess. And so I'm really happy that Abby will be speaking at this virtual conference. So let's dig into that topic, Abby. Um, you know, why is this a, a specific challenge that maybe is a little different than other messes? What, what makes it special and, and maybe especially unpleasant? I think that once people get through the hurdles of actually planning the research and then they have the excitement of, you know, running the sessions, whether that's usability tests or card sorts or one-on-one -on -one interviews, um, you know, that, that part all seems very, very exciting. But I often get the reaction about uh, that next part, the part where you're like, you're back at your desk, you've got your notebook full of notes, you've got hours and hours of recordings, and it's sort of that now what? kind of moment. So for me, that is a perfect implementation of information architecture. Like you've got all this stuff and you have to kind of, you know, whittle it down to the real salient points and then organize it into a way that it's going to be transferable. So it's not just something that you experienced and now are educated from, but it's also something that you can share with your stakeholders and your colleagues so that you can actually take action on some of these things. And I feel like you know, that's something that I've always, um, I've always had research as a part of my work in information architecture, um, but I never really thought about how I use information architecture to do that part of getting from the kind of like bulk of the data that is brought out of those efforts into something that's really salient. So I'm, I'm excited about this topic. I, it's kind of new for me to explore uh, this angle on it, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. So, okay, so we have all this stuff that's coming out. It's, let, let's think about it. Let's dig a little deeper. It's coming from different sources, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the tools may be different. You mentioned card sort results side by side with uh, user testing results uh, and, and many others. And implicit in that is that um, not only are there different tools, but there are different people operating those tools or running those studies. Do you, do you have to Think about getting uh, creating information architecture for these findings in a way that, um, that that starts at the beginning before these people run their studies before they start operating tools or 
Or is it really more like uh, an organic thing? Once you're presented with all this stuff, how can you put it together so that the sum may be greater than the parts? Yeah, I'm really glad that you that you asked that because when I was uh, thinking through the topic to write up the proposal for the talk, that's one thing that occurred to me is that it's something that if you don't plan ahead in terms of how you're capturing your data, it makes your job way harder at the end. So there's certain things that, that I do um, kind of in my practice uh, that I found do save time. Uh, a really good example of that, and this seems so simple, but I find it to be really effective, is I take notes in a spreadsheet as opposed to in a long form text document. And this is something that like when I've told other practitioners about this, they're like, whoa, wait a minute, what do you mean <laughs> you take notes in a spreadsheet? But the reason that I do it is because when you go into a research study, especially one that's uh, qualitative and you, you, know, you have a set of questions or a set of tasks that you're, uh, you're notating, you have an order to the script and you have uh, the want later on to kind of look across all of your participants and see for similarities and differences. So by organizing things into a spreadsheet uh, based on where you are in the script, you kind of have this natural grid that emerges where you can not only look through one participant's experience if you go kind of top to bottom, but you can also look across many participants in terms of side to side. So for a single question, whether it's something simple like demographics or their past experience with the product you're working on or their reaction to a certain feature, you can see what, you know, 9, 10, 12 people had to say about it without having to kind of scroll through notes or print things out and chop them up and paste them up. Um, so it's simple things like that, but I, I do feel like if you set yourself up for success in the beginning, you'll have an easier time of getting to those findings later on. So how much of that, that, that sort of initial exploration is, is based on looking at uh, results, or, or, or are you kind of going even kind of further back to actual questions that uh, researchers start out with? I think that thinking about the design of the conversation is a really important part to this. Um, but I also believe, you know, one of the things that um, if you read anything on interviewing and, and successful interviewing, uh, it's very clear that you need to kind of go with the flow, right? Not stick so close to your script. So unlike usability testing, where you kind of do want to stick closer to the script, uh, when you're doing something that is truly qualitative, you kind of want to let things flow. Um, so hitting all the questions is a more important part than hitting them all in a, a, the same order, which I also think lends itself really well to that, that spreadsheet technique. So I, I'm, I'm probably asking my question in the wrong way. So I'm, I'm not thinking about the, the specific questions uh, that may make up, a, let's say, an interview script uh, as much as the broader questions that drive research. Oh, right. Uh, and uh, maybe a better way to think of those is the goals of studies, or at least the objectives. Yeah, no, I find that, um, you know, when you have identified your objectives up front, which hopefully, hopefully if you're doing research, you know why you're doing it. Uh, but if you've really like crystallized those points and you've already sold that through to your organization, that's kind of a natural taxonomy to start to pin your findings beneath. So if you set out to learn X, you're going to then use X as sort of that lens to look through what you found, looking for, you know, where, how can I support that I actually did achieve this? And what were the answers to the, the primary questions that were kind of grouped within that objective. So I really like that you're getting at the, the a discussion of taxonomy, and that shouldn't be surprising, but um, given you and me. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, so I, I'm thinking of that at the same time. I'm thinking of the kind of work that, uh, for example, you're starting to see at places like MailChimp, where um, I've always found them like a, a great 
case study for, for doing not only great work, but uh, you can really point back to the, the process and the systems they have in place and, and correlate those with the outcome. And one of the things that I love the, about what they do is they dump, literally, they dump all that research that they're coming up with from many different sources, different people, different players, into Evernote. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they know that Evernote is not necessarily the end-all, be-all solution. Uh, it's very imperfect. However, there is this big benefit of co-location, and they, you know, it's a big free text search tool. And, you know, it has the OCR capabilities, so there's a lot of, you know, a lot of things are being indexed together that weren't before. And what they're finding uh, is that the researchers are not only looking for maybe uh, results that they had already found before or knew to exist, but in the process they're finding similar studies done by other people using other tools with other perspectives. So suddenly the HCI people are, are, are bumping into the results that came from analytic studies, for example. Uh, so that's like the opposite approach, the sort of more bottom-up, organic approach to co-locating results. Now, I think that kind of goes very nicely with what you're talking about with taxonomy, and uh, you need the top-down and the bottom-up to be successful. So I'd love it if you talk a little bit more about the top-down here. That's what I haven't heard very much about in my explorations. Sure. Yeah, I think that one of the things that is really interesting about research is that if you look at research findings as a user experience, you have to think about who are your users. And if you're a researcher audience, right, like something like what MailChimp is doing is the perfect kind of bottom-up approach to organizing things by by keywords, by tags, having the ability to, you know, do full text searches on, you know, whatever words they're looking for, whatever concepts. But if you're looking at an audience of executives, you put them in front of a tool like that and they're going to feel completely overwhelmed and like it's not something that's necessarily for them. So the creation of kind of these, this top-down approach to research where you're organizing things into to uh, enough of like bite-sized chunks that can be, um, you know, enticing to an executive audience to not only consume, because oftentimes, you know, they're, they're maybe not going to show up to your meeting and it is going to be something that they're just reading on their own time. Um, so the, the not only consuming it part, but also the remembering it part, like tying it into their language and their narrative enough that it's something that they will actually keep in the back of their mind so that the next time they're making a decision that could impact whether or not you're learning from this research or ignoring it, um, I think that that's really the critical part in creation of, of a taxonomy for, uh, for folks in that, that type of an audience. It's like really putting it into their language and organizational structures that make sense to them. Okay, yeah. And you know, um, you're making me think a little bit of what I think uh, Tomer Sharon, who's actually one of our authors, he wrote Validating Product Ideas. Yeah, great book. Uh, he he uh, starting the UX group, uh, what's well, underway uh, at uh, WeWork. And I, I think they have a pretty robust system for tagging uh, research findings at a very granular level. And, uh, and I think part of it is by audience. It makes me want to go, uh, go see what he's doing. Um, so so you're, talking about, you're talking about audience as maybe you know, uh, one of the primary ways of organizing this content. Um, what about... Are there others that you're thinking about that should be really pretty critical, uh, maybe around, again, certain objectives or certain, 
you know, I mean, certain products, certain types of outcomes, uh, probably can go on and on. Uh, what emerges for you in terms of the taxonomy of user research findings? I think, honestly, it comes down to confidence. Like, I think that when you're sitting in front of a massive pile of stuff and you want to organize it into something that makes sense to other people, the number one thing you need to work on is confidence. And I feel like in a lot of cases, at least from my education, there's like this missing part in the middle, right? We talk about how to run research effectively and we talk about the need to communicate those findings, but there's this black hole of knowledge in the middle. And I've seen a lot of people uh, emerge with tools and methodologies in that middle space. Uh, but I don't know how much it's being kind of educated to in terms of that through line. So I feel like the way that you've organized this uh, virtual conference is is really just like right on, right? You have me right between uh, people who are talking about that research and design feedback loop and then also making that that finding part infectious within an organization. Um, and I think that that's really, you know, I can cover that that piece of like, okay, so what do you do? You're all alone at your desk and you're trying to break this down into bite-sized chunks. How do you actually do that? Um, and I, I do feel like that's that's something that applies not just to research, but also, you know, if you've ever met somebody who's working on a taxonomy of more than a thousand things to be organized, they're going to come on the same kind of problems that, that we'll be talking about. Well, I like that framing around confidence, especially because it makes me think back to the, the point you were making about, uh, let's say, decision makers and, and how they interact with this information. Uh, you know, so what gives them confidence? Probably something like a dashboard. And, and that might be, you know, at least one aspect of your IA is framing a lot of this, this research uh, through some sort of dashboard. I don't know what you think of that. Uh, is there a, a dashboard model uh, that works for you, or is that just a, a metaphor that falls apart pretty quickly when you actually try to apply it to research findings? Well, it depends on what kind of research you're doing. Like a, a qualitatively driven dashboard, I think, is a little bit more difficult to achieve. Um, but if you're working mainly in, in the quantitative space, I think that a dashboard can work nicely. But I think that what you're bringing up is that we need to pay attention to what our user needs. And in this case, our users are our colleagues, right? And that, that kind of application of that same user centricity that we apply when we're working in the, the sort of like end user facing world, we can apply when we're looking internally to our own organizations. So we can understand that for this one particular colleague that I really need to understand this material, I'm going to need a dashboard. But for this other colleague who, you know, has that, that lengthy train ride where they always are reading PowerPoint decks, for example, you might need to do more of like a traditional ex executive summary type of thing. Uh, to break down that same research. So it might actually take a few different implementations. And if you compare that to kind of that end user world, it's the same as when you're looking at uh, one user that might prefer to work on a desktop, you know, large monitor environment versus that other user, same site, same application, uh, maybe even the same task, but they're much more comfortable working in mobile. So there, there might be like uh, parallels to draw between you know, understanding that context that they're in as well as their preferences. Yeah, and then I think an, another big challenge has got to be uh, taking um, the sort of broader audience that might just be looking at this data for kind of the wrong reasons, often for validation of their own ideas, and instead challenging them and, and getting them to see that, that the research findings are actually part of a much bigger dynamic, time-dependent way of understanding reality 
So let me let me try to explain that a little bit. Uh, if you're a researcher using these these types of systems where you know there's a strong information architecture that pulls together lots of research findings, you're you're looking for time, uh, the sort of the time-based dependencies. So for example, um, you might look at um, the most common uh, searches that come out of a search analytics report, which is very quantitative, and use that to drive a task analysis study, which may actually be very qualitative, which may in turn drive something else. So questions lead to answers, but more importantly, they lead to new questions, and you have to explore those connections over time in order to really, really get at the reality that the research is bringing to you. But most people who are not in the user research tribe probably won't see it that way. How do we get them past that? How do we get them to stick with it over time and start seeing the connections that only reveal themselves over time? Yeah, and I think that really comes down to juxtaposition. I mean, you have to be thinking about um, the way that these... So if we, if we think about, like, the findings, they get chunked out into, uh, you know, the things that you're going to communicate. Well, in some cases, that can be communicated in too small a chunk so that it gets taken out of context, right? Um, so I think that that presentation layer that you put on things and the control that you implement in the taxonomy that you're providing to those people to consume those findings really ultimately um, is what's positioning those findings as related to other findings or completely, you know, stands on their own. And as a, as a researcher, that's something that I, I feel like we need to implement the same levels of control that we would for a consumer audience. You know, if you want people to know that this tool is often bought with this tool on something like Amazon, it's a similar kind of construct to what you would be thinking about in terms of chunking out your research findings. It's like you want that juxtaposition to say, you know, when you're looking at this, I want you to keep this in mind. So while you're looking at, you know, the top search terms for, you know, this time period, I also want you to be thinking about these three tasks because they're really closely related. Um, and sort of the way that we present that, I think, is within our control, but often I don't know that it's necessarily thought of that way. Uh, you're, you're just kind of making my mind swim here. Uh, I, I, I love to talk about this more and more and more. It's a, a topic near and dear to my heart, but I know that this is only one of the messes that you're interested in, in cleaning up. Uh, I think you've, so I'm going to just change the, the our, our topic just a little bit to to um, the, the question for you, which are what are some of the other interesting messes you, you've been working on lately? I, I can think of certainly um, uh, a community mess that you've really brought a lot of clarity to with the information architecture community, specifically around uh, doing things like World IA Day. Yeah, that that was a an interesting uh, an interesting challenge. <laughs> uh, I would say one of the messes that I'm actually really involving myself in these days is is around organizational governance of taxonomies, which I know sounds like the absolute sexiest topic in the whole wide world um, to you, but it's it's For, actually, to me it does. Yeah, so no, I, I don't I, know I, about I, the other yeah, people listening, yeah. but hey, listeners, taxonomy is awesome. Uh, your your organization has it. You just might not do anything with it that's productive. Um, so yeah, that's one of the things that's been coming up in my my working world lately is that I've had a lot of success with introducing the idea of um, cleaning up taxonomies and adhering to controlled vocabularies to organizations, both large and small. Um, and I've started to get the calls of like, okay, now what? Right? Like we've done that, and 
you know, how do we maintain that over time? Because, you know, one thing that I, I try to be clear with my clients on is that this work doesn't have an end. It, it's an ongoing process. It's like a garden. You have to like continually work on pruning out what's not healthy and replacing, um, you know, new things. And, you know, that whole process, I think, is largely undefined for a lot of organizations. So I've been trying to do some thinking and, and also some consulting on that aspect of, of taxonomy and information architecture in general around like, what do you do once things are in a pretty good state if you don't want it to get crufted up over the next few years? Um, and talking, you know, a- answering questions like who in your organization should actually own an information architecture and how should it actually be educated through an organization once something like a controlled vocabulary has been created, you know, so it doesn't just become that that dusty document that one person in a back room somewhere has and really, you know, holds dear. Well, you know, I, I love the metaphors that you use. Uh, I, I think that's one of the things you've always been really great at is, is you know, uh, I mean, this is not a, a new problem, but you breathe new life into it when you frame it as a, a garden, for example. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that I wonder if a lot of uh, these organizations that you're working with uh, might also value is if you frame this work as the the voice or the language of the of the company. Yeah, no, exactly. Like talking about a controlled vocabulary as larger than just something that your back end and front end developers are are wholly familiar with and thinking about, you know, the language that you use in your marketing materials, the language that right. you use in your help documentation and and more importantly, the language that you use in meetings with each other. Because <laughs> those tend to be the words that might not end up in your product today, but give it a year and all of a sudden it becomes that thing that everybody agrees, oh yeah, that's really clear because we say it internally a lot, so it must be clear to our users. And then you find out like, no, actually, and you've crufted up your, your product with 17 variations on the same concept over time. Yeah, gosh, I've seen that happen so many times and it's so expensive when you try to fix that post hoc. So um, listen to Abby uh, or bring her in and uh, you might uh, save a lot of money among other things. Let's get back to uh, World IA Day just for a moment because I just think it's such a cool idea. Uh, Abby was uh, uh, the president of the Information Architecture Institute for a number of years and, and really helped turn it around. And uh, in the process of uh, doing that, invented with Dan Klein this, this World IA Day concept. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it, Abby? Sure. So World IA Day was something that was really born out of uh, a user need. We had uh, the Information Architecture Institute had a great conference that was started by uh, Peter Mayerholtz, um called IDEA. And it was a, a wonderful show. Uh, we drew somewhere between like 250 to 300 people in a North American location once a year. It was in the fall. Um, and we had really, you know, big names, awesome topics, people premiering really interesting information architecture content. But the problem was our users, the people that were hungry for information architecture knowledge, were all over the world of various abilities to travel and pay for things like fancy conferences. And they also were in a lot of uh, different languages and you know global regions around the world. So World IA Day was really born out of out of that idea. Where you know are we really a global educational institute if we're only serving the North American audience one time a year in in this you know English only event? Um, so we experimented with the idea of uh, of sort of bringing that to local 
kind of groups and say like what would it be like to have an information architecture event in French what would it be like to have an information architecture event in Japanese and how would that be kind of umbrellaed under the global organization so um, it was born from that and then you know from there it's just really been a big experiment I mean every year we try things a little bit differently um, we're going into our sixth year now which is kind of crazy <laughs> to think wow. about um, but we had let's see 72 people apply on behalf of 64 locations in 28 countries this year for 2017. So it's just, it's growing like wildfire. And uh, yeah, I would say the information architecture challenges at this point are really around the communication between all of those local organizers to make sure that they have the tools that they need, but also that they have a feeling of autonomy enough to make the event theirs. Because at, at the end of the day, that's really what makes a successful World IA Day is that grassroots energy. Well, and I think you, you really uh, are taking a smart approach because... Uh, among other things, you're, you see it as an event not just for attendees, not just for speakers, but for the organizers themselves. They get a benefit from it, and uh, you know, local communities and the IA community broadly all benefit from that work. You're tapping energy in ways that uh, uh, maybe don't require as much from those organizers as it, as it would if they had to do an entire conference from scratch in their right. community. Yeah. But, Still, they're they're involved and they're contributing, and, and that's an important energy to tap, and it leads to a lot of other connections and, and growth, both personally, but for those communities. Yeah, our, our local leader growth is, is just amazing. I mean, one of the core tenets that we've set forth is that we're trying to empower local leaders. And really what that means is there's there's that person in the community, and I meet them at events all around the world where they're like, man, I wish... I wish something would happen in my town. You know, I wish that I could meet other like-minded people without traveling to a conference. And now I have an answer to them. Now I can just say, like, you should have a World IA Day. And they're like, well, no, my town, my town is so small, I can't do that. And, you know, no, you could have 10 people meet in a coffee shop and watch videos of people giving keynotes all over the world and just, you know, talk. You could have a pizza party at your office and have a bunch of people that are maybe interested in things that are related to IA, but they don't actually know that they're related to IA yet and kind of you can be that that catalyst for change in your your local environment I think that that's just it's a really beautiful message so where do we go uh, to to become involved and what's the date going to be for 2017 so it's on February the 18th, 2017 uh, all over the world and if you want more information you can go to worldiaday.org fantastic and uh, while we're talking about dates and, and uh, websites uh, again uh, uh, user Research for Everyone virtual conference takes place October 11th, and Abby is uh, one of eight people on the program. She'll be talking about making sense of research findings. You can go to userresearchforeveryone.com to learn more, and uh, I hope you'll join us. I can't wait to hear Abby's talk. Abby, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Lou. Thanks, Lou.